0: You know, I can barely pronounce your the name of what you do. You're a clinical cardiologist that does clinical electrophysiology, yes. and you've talked a lot about that. Um, can you just maybe explain in deconstructed layman's terms what it means to be a clinical electrophysiologist, and you have alluded to it here and there in your conversation, but what is the simple uh, understanding? Understanding,
1: sure. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the heart, I think we started by saying that the heart is a pump that's driven by electricity. So you can think of the heart as your big house. When things go wrong, there are different types of people that can put things together. There's the plumbing system of the heart, which is all the blood vessels of the heart that could lead to heart attacks and things of that nature. And there are plumbers that take care of that. We call those people interventional cardiologists. They can put in stents, and they can treat the plumbing system of the heart. Then we have CT surgeons that can actually rebuild the heart. (laughs) So they can change the valves. They can crack your chest. They can move things around. And then me, among the people in my trade, we are the heart electricians. So sometimes a problem goes wrong, and the electrical wiring is what's wrong, and therefore we do the electrical wiring I think that in a simple way is that when you have heart rhythm problems, when you're passing out, when you have issues of sudden death, when you're having palpitations, when you have a lightheadedness, when the electrical system goes haywire, we go in and we, we fix the electrical system of the heart. And it's, it's not as though that you can actually see the electrical system. I think that is the one thing, because you can see the plumbing of the heart, but you can't really see the electrical system of the heart. And so, we work with a lot of computers we so when you go to your doctor and they do an ekg they're looking at the heart from the outside in the only thing that we do that's different is that we can actually put catheters on the inside so we can look at the heart from the inside out
0: wow wow that is thank you so much for for clarifying that for us and again you did talk about you know shocking a pregnant woman and al- although maternal cardiac arrest occurs infrequently, the, a healthcare provider should be prepared to manage this situation in any healthcare facility. And the infrequency of maternal cardiac arrest Underscores the need for regular team training and practice of resuscitation skills and scenarios through simulation training. And earlier in this conversation, you talked about ACLS, and can can you like just totally deconstruct that? You know, like all healthcare providers should have some basic training as to if anybody, but a pregnant woman, for instance, because people are used to seeing other people, but when a pregnant woman passes out or has a heart attack, people are confused as to what to do because there's also another patient involved. So can you tell us, you know, if a pregnant woman went down for any reason, what should we be doing? I think
1: if a pregnant woman went down, that you actually treat them like any other person. What's really important is really being prepared and this is where I think the community can actually help. When it comes to you know sudden death, sudden death is still the leading cause. The number one cause of death is still sudden death, and cardiac arrhythmias actually comprise a pretty large portion of that. So someone that's acutely had a heart attack or someone whose heart has just stopped abruptly. And the first thing, one, is that The more people that know ACLS or the more people, not even necessarily ACLS is advanced cardiac life support, but really basic life support. I think now we have enough data now these days to suggest before people thought you had to do like mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, really single-handed CPR now is the key. The key is really pumping on the heart, the ability to just be able to sit on someone's chest and really keep pumping. And one, what's actually been shown is just, just doing that is enough. You don't even have to worry about trying to blow anything on the amount that you really just have to learn how to do a good uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation just by doing simple CPR, just chest compressions. And so I think being, having a community where we all learn how to do just basic life support, I think it's important. If you find a pregnant woman that's collapsed again, you need to start doing CPR. How do you start doing CPR? You start, again, by chest compressions. I so think you do the
0: ABCs, make sure the that... The ABCs,
1: you make sure that, you know, you check the airway, mm. you know, you, you do, you do the, the, the basics. That being said, if it happens to be a rhythm disturbance, which is what we worry about, then you need something to be able to shock them. And then this is really where AEDs come to play. So if you were just a bystander, And I think, you know, one of the things that my practice and we do is that we do something we call the scare race each year. And we actually raise money for having AEDs in the community. We've actually donated a lot to the schools. And one of the things that was the most satisfying is that, you know, you don't hope for it. But when it happens, we have at least a couple of patients that were shocked by our own AEDs from one of the schools, from some of the schools that actually came back into our practice. But just from a, a community effort that we really ought to have AEDs in the supermarkets, AEDs in the churches, AEDs in the schools, AEDs in places where, you know, people congregate just so if if someone were to go down, the AED is an automatic defibrillator that actually would make will self-diagnose and would self would would automatically also shock the patient. So those things actually are very important. But coming to the question of the pregnant woman, it's, it's basically the resuscitative effort is exactly the same as you would do with a, a non-pregnant mm-hmm. person. So I
0: just wanted to talk about, because you talked about two important things. You talked about something your practice does, which is called the SCARE race as mm-hmm. part of a non-for-profit organization. Sure. And SCARE is an acronym. So can you explain what sure, the acronym mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so, uh, so SCARE is really an acronym for Signing Cardiac Arrest Awareness.
0: Sudden cardiac uh, awareness awareness and education, research education, and so this is where you go out and educate people that die suddenly, you know. So, SCARE stands for Sudden Cardiac Arrest and Research Education, and you guys have a foundation that goes into the community to advise people and educate people that if you see somebody that goes down suddenly, this is, and when I mean go down suddenly, collapse, they're trying to die, this is what you do. And also, you talked about an AED. Can you tell us that's an automatic... External defibrillator. External defibrillator. Yes. And what it does, you said, You you can, can you explain to sure. us what, how, what it
1: does? So, yeah. so I think we talked about the TV scenario that we see where we actually put pads and we're basically trying to shock the heart. So when, when you have what we call sudden cardiac arrest, what's actually happening is that your heart is actually quivering. And it's quivering almost, it's beating fast. It's quivering almost at about three to 400 times a minute. And that basically actually leads to cardiac standstill. The only way that you can actually bring the heart back is actually by shocking it. And so when you see people shock, we're using a defibrillator. To defibrillate basically means to... Shock the heart, and the hope is to get back to a normal rhythm and actually get and, and have a return to spontaneous circulation or what we call ROS. Now, in, in the hospital where we, we're already in the hospital, we normally have always had defibrillators to do that because we can see a rhythm change and we call all run and take our bags and go in and shock. But over time, we've developed defibrillators that are actually automatic. So that A part of the AED. Is automatic and the, you know, the external defibrillator part. So, but in this case, you don't even have to be trained. You just need to know where, you just need to be trained to know where to put the patches. In fact, when you open the AED box, it actually has the pictures of exactly how to place it on the chest. And so if someone were to go down, if you place those patches on them, the device itself would make the diagnosis. It would announce that you know, this is my diagnosis, and I'm about to shock, and it will go ahead and could actually shock and get the patient back into a normal rhythm. And so, so
0: you have talked about actually in your practice, this has been a life saving. Uh, you, you, your, your foundation. Our
1: foundation. So, for our foundation, we've yeah. actually seen patient uh, patients within our own community. So, you know, this we've been doing this for about maybe the last 15 years. Or so. We have a race where we actually do people, a a race that she is typically in October, we have this because it also coincides also with the sudden cardiac death awareness with the Heart Rhythm Society, which we all belong to. One of the things that we do during the race is that we also have an education. We have CPR training that morning. We have basic life support training. So for folks that are truly interested in learning some of these things, they can actually come to the race and there'll be someone there to coach and teach and, and sort of talk them through some of the basics. But a lot of what we've raised through the foundation has really been used in in, in, saving, in, in, in saving lives and at least within our little small central Georgia community. we've actually seen people come back as a result of the AEDs that we had left at at some schools or some venues.
0: Wow, wow. So if someone wants to learn more about this, they can go to GACRI.com or Scare, S-C-A-R-E Foundation. And I guess you do it in October because October is also the Halloween month, the the scary month, and this is how to remember this. Wow, wow. Thank you guys so much for doing this in the community because this is so important i know there are so many races there's a breast cancer awareness race there are autism races but it's important to have a sudden cardiac death awareness prevention race oh, to bring people to attention of this mm-hmm. so thank you so much you know there are also social determinants of cardiovascular health mm-hmm. and uh, disparities in health and health care that has a a social dimension And we are here in rural Forsyth, Georgia, and I mean, can you speak to maybe how a low resource woman or a a woman that has faced some kind of disparity in care, how she can still make sure that she has optimal pre-pregnancy, pregnancy and delivery health, even though she might be a minority, she might have faced disparity, and she might also have low income?
1: Sure. I mean, I applaud you, Dr. Bola, for having your practice here, you know, and, and for all the work that you do. Thank you. I really think, I, you know, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but the system that we have is unfair and, and it's unequal. When it comes to the issue of health disparities, you know, they've been here for, Lord knows, almost 300 years. And the truth is that things are not changing. Things haven't changed. And it really takes people like you to come to communities like this to sort of make changes. I think at times when you talk about social determinants of health, you know, you always ask the question, you know, what is race in all of this? Because, you know, race to some people is a social construct. And the question is, unfortunately, because of this social construct, people that look different or people that don't belong to the majority actually end up suffering immensely from the system that we have. There's a lot of studies clearly showing that seeing a physician that looks like you makes you actually makes you more compliant because they listen to you. I think the problem that we have, I graduated medical school almost about 26 years ago. I started medical school about 30 years ago in Boston, and I can assure you that I was the only black male in my class. And if you step back, there's a recent study that just showed that in 100 years since the Spanish flu or the ep- epidemic of 1918, the number of black male physicians actually hasn't changed in, 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 medicine. In, in medicine in 100 years. And so I think we still have a mountain. I mean, we, we have a mountain to climb in terms of the social determinants of health I think the simplest thing in my mind, and I think this will really take governmental action, is in my mind, one of the things that could actually speed things up is really by having universal health. I really think with that universal health, we're just barking up the wrong tree. Every single time we're doing this, We, some of us go out, you know, and again, this also doesn't just affect people of color. But, you know, here in middle Georgia, I mean, we have my practice we have practices all the way down into south georgia so we see a lot of very very poor white folks that actually also face the same problems and most of it is really just poverty and inequality and and i think you know just simple things and then the environment you know the environmental factor you know what when we talk about heart disease i tell you the risk factors for heart disease well a lot of the risk factors for heart disease that we established was to establish through the Framingham trial or the Framingham study, which was really done in a, a, a city outside of Boston. Framingham is a city outside of Boston. So a lot of the risk, risk factors that we know is out of the Framingham trial in a relatively homogeneous population. Well, what is the if you came here into middle Georgia, yes, we know obesity is a problem. We know hypertension is a problem. We know your cholesterol being high. We know smoking is a problem. But there are other social determinants that probably needed to go into that equation and never went in. Being poor, not being going, not going to school, not getting an education—you know, these are all things that really, for me, it breaks my heart each day when when you, we go out to work. But we we soldier on. But in my mind, one of the simplest, or maybe the greatest equalizer for most of us would actually be if there was universal healthcare. Because you and I remember that when we came to town, I mean, there were doctors in town that would not even take Medicare, not not alone Medicaid. But it only took time. And I think the corporatization of medicine really systemically still keeps all these things in place. And that's at the social level. Now, from a doctor standpoint, most of us, we went to medical school. I mean, I went to medical schools here. I mean, no one really talked about cultural competency. If you ask the average doctor, we're all products of our environment. You know, if if you came from a home where they were racist or they didn't care, guess what? You you walk into the room where they say biases. I mean, you know, there was actually a, a recent op-ed in the New England Journal on a physician that wasn't listened to. This was a physician that was sick in her own hospital. And nobody would listen to her just because of the color of her skin. There are things that are still in the textbooks, such as... Blacks have fewer nerve endings than whites, but does it make sense? So things that are even that we have to sort of tackle, even at the education, at the medical school level, that are filled in our textbooks. And so you bring all those implicit biases. What we forget, and I don't want to sound you know, like a preacher, but what we really forget is that at the end of the day, the doctor-patient relationship is sacred. And, and really having a therapeutic exchange You know, one of the most impressive classes that I ever took in medical school for all the signs, and it's it's actually it was a course called the patient interview. And I think with the corporatization of medicine, we've lost that that art of medicine because everything starts with trust. If you are trusted, they become compliant. If you are trusted, they will show up for a part to be a part of your study. If you are trusted, they will follow what you're telling them. And and we've almost lost that. We've almost lost that in this big picture. We we talk about all these, we'll do this, we'll be more efficient, we'll we'll find more scores, we find better scores, we need this, we need no, but at the end, I still think we, we need trust. And and trust is really what's what's killing our system because people don't get listened to, women don't get listened to, and you need to find somebody that you can trust, someone that you can talk to. Well, one option would be less race black people or a minority and underrepresented people in medicine. And that, that is not changing anytime soon. In my mind, at least, that's that's where it starts. Yeah. I might be able to go in a room and play with electricity all day. But again, it starts with the patient-doctor relationship because somebody comes to me, I have to listen to them. Not everyone that comes to you needs a complex procedure. Someone is having palpitations. They just need to be assured, hey, quit drinking coffee. You'll be fine. Your heart is okay. Well, you said that. I didn't have to do a test. I didn't have to, buy, you know. All I said was to sit and listen to them. And the more that the system gets so corporatized and timed and all these other things, I think we, it's, it's, in my mind, it's quickly getting worse. But one of the most fundamental things is that I think we all ought to have some kind of basic insurance.
0: Wow. This is you know. this is very, you know, you talked about so many issues, even in that statement, you talked about being a cardiologist. One of the things that can cause heart disease um, for patients that end up with you is even obesity. Yes, and even in the statistics for obesity, there's a, a disparity right there. Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, yes. we're sitting here at your office. <laughs> I mean, your office, around your office, a complete food desert. I just drove, I drove 20 miles here. Okay. And there's no grocery store between here and where I came. And so you, you know, one of the things that I learned early on was that my partner and I, who happens to also be your, your husband, <laughs> We're, we're, I was we're, hoping that <laughs> you know,
0: <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> <is just> <laughs> Oh wow! We, <laughs> you're the best, Dr. Poku. I love this line. <laughs> we, we
1: we happen to travel a lot, and we go. <laughs> we have offices in many places, and, and one of the first things that I do when I go into each town is really just to drive around and look around. And I think it's important. The environment is important. There was a recent trial that came out actually showing it in you know, one of these studies, uh, basically showing that we talk about all these ge- genetics and all these things, but in fact, genetics probably play about 30% of the role in your outcome. The other 70%, guess what? It's all the other things. And so even if your scorehard for life Because you can't change who you are. You can't change your parents. You can't change the genes that are handed to you. You still got a 70% chance that the system within which you come into can actually help you overcome what what afflicted your parents. And so, as I mentioned, just food, food inequality. You know, we have food deserts here. You were telling me the story of someone who gets the check and they go in and they go to like these convenience stores. Convenience stores are not grocery stores. And so you are sitting there trying to advise someone, hey, why don't you go home and eat something fresh, eat some vegetables? Guess what? They can't even buy vegetables. Now, even in Macon, you know, we have the north side of Macon, we have the south side, and the grocery stores look different. The Lightning in the grocery store is different. It's the same company would have the same two grocery stores. The one on the preferred side of town the lightning is better around the vegetables. They're around on the unpreferred side of town. The lightning is on the sweet stuff. Okay? Yeah, but you don't have to go far. And so uh, people have talked about the city of Detroit being, you know, being a food desert. Yeah, because well, how can you have a big city with no real grocery stores? So even in heartfelt, you know, like simple things we tell patients, like anything that comes out of a can, anything that comes out of a, a package is preserved. and What's the best preservative? It's salt. So how do you advise a heart failure patient who leaves their food there to go buy food? How, if they don't know how to prepare food, where else can they buy anything? Going to a convenience store is not the trick because you're going you're gonna to get something out of a bag. Even if they say it's low salt, that at least has 2,000 <laughs> milligrams of salt already because that's the easiest preservative to put in a, in a box. And so these are the cultural part the part of cultural competency and so we may need to, you know not necessarily going back to the good old days but we still need to have the physician as a healer because it's it's really a healing that takes place there's a transference when you meet and talk and, and exchange because we all bring our biases and we're a product of the system don't get me wrong i mean i went to medical school here i got trained here because it's structural sometimes even the physicians forget and and that's why it needs to be taught. That's why it needs to be emphasized. That's why they need classes. That's why they need they need some way of truly assessing. They would check on you every ten years to make sure that you have your boards, but they check on you to know if you actually knew how your environment how the environment affected your patients. Because <laughs> no. we we don't we don't have a way. But these are little things that I think we could do to actually make us more culturally competent. I mean, it's, it's really a matter of cultural competency and it doesn't take much. I mean, if you've lived in different parts of the world, everywhere you go to, you learn the language, you understand the cultural norms, you, you know, you have to learn something about the people because not all that we do is technical and not necessarily all scientific, but at the very core of this is really healing. And some people get healed just by listening to your voice, just by the touch of your hand and examining them. And, and that takes trust. And I think that's what we've lost.
0: Wow. Well, wow, Dr. Poku, I wonder if maybe the communities or the government can help people with community gardens and. And I know it might be tough to just take time to till the ground and plant the fruit, foods, and vegetables, but you know, I, I just, you know, what do you think might be a solution because you have the whole of South Georgia under, I mean, you have practices all over South Georgia. Mm -hmm. If we're just even going to focus on South Georgia, and I'm sure there is a place like this in rural Pennsylvania or somewhere, you know, Boston's rural somewhere, people that live in these communities, we know there's not a lot of income, a lot of resources. And I look back, you know, I'm from Africa originally, and I look back at some of the things the Africans did. You know, they would plant a garden and oh. tend a garden and, and, and harvest the food for their local communities. Now, even though we're in America, can we go back to these models to help these people with their diet and their risk of hypertension, risk of dying? What can we do?
1: Well, I, I think a lot of it, again, still starts with the community and, and the community getting educated. You can always sort of look at the data. A lot of these things have taken so many years to to build up to this point. Deconstructing it is, is going to take some work, but I'm I'm more concerned just about the acute issues. The acute issues that we have are things such as, you know, uh, the, all these critical access hospitals that are dying, the community hospitals that are disappearing. You know, a lot of these things are all dying in the name of corporate America. The things that also bother me, this whole telemedicine is great, but telemedicine is no substitution for actually seeing someone and touching someone and actually caring for someone. It's a substitute. It shouldn't be replace care because what I see happening is that people are going to say well if that's the case we're just going to use video we're going to use the technology out of this and it we haven't addressed the the you know the, the the core solution yes i mean there are issues on our end you know which as people of color or poor people no no one has to be born poor you know where you landed is none of your fault but as a community or as a society i think if we all can agree that health is not a privilege and that health is a right, then really by just giving everyone, because that's really what I see, by just giving everyone insurance would change everything. Because let me tell you, when I go, you know, we had Obamacare, Georgia, Georgia refused to expand Medicaid. So guess what? most of the people in the poor communities that actually even, the ones that even got Obamacare can't even come to the hospitals in the city because half the hospitals actually don't even accept it. And so if I see a patient with Obamacare, I have to decide where to take them to have their procedure. It's just a simple thing like that. But if there was like some kind of universal acceptance of their insurance, they'll be more than likely to go out and get primary care at an early point in their disease state. So in terms of big picture, yeah, there are things that we can help with community gardens, educating people, but they really what needs to change is, is really some equity. And I think universal health will probably be the initial balance, at least that people can say, hey, I have insurance and I can walk in. Because there are some people, you know, there are people, that, you know, Unfortunately, sometimes we make decisions based on the least, the people that abuse the system. Most people are not here to abuse the system. Most people don't want to go sit in emergency rooms. If you if people have insurance, they'll come in sooner. They'll, they'll get in a, a lot earlier than we have. The fact is that people are proud. You know, I'm not sick. So the only time the only time they get to you is really when they can't walk and they're short of bread, their feet are swollen, they can't put on their boots. That's when they want to go see a doctor because they know, hey, man, I've I've kind of hit this roadblock. But if they had insurance, they probably would would come in a whole lot sooner. And I mean, good insurance. And, and so at least for me, that's for a society that's wealthy, and it still is the wealthiest nation on earth, we, we should be able to provide you know, universal health care. Because if you think about it, Medicare started, people thought it wasn't going to work. But guess what? If you try to take Medicare away today from my... 65 and above patients, I mean they would they'll, they'll kill you. But <laughs> now everyone takes it. Most physicians that didn't take Medi even Medicare back then. Now in in OB because you tend to see m- much more younger patients, I guess some physicians end up being selective. but otherwise, if insurance was universal, this would would be the, a level playing field for people for just from a health standpoint now, would this cure off societal ills? Maybe not, but at least from a health standpoint, I think it would It probably would probably be the biggest bang for a buck.
0: Well, we have been talking to Dr. Joe Poku on the Coco Pods podcast, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. Uh, Dr. Poku is a f- uh, board member with the SCARE Foundation, a non-for-profit organization where the educate people about sudden cardiac arrest and actually donate freely from the foundation automatic external defibrillators aEDs to help prevent sudden cardiac arrests they have through this program saved a lot of lives and the people have been able to come back to the to his office to express their gratitude Dr Poku is also a founding physician with Georgia Arrhythmia Consultant and Research Institute. He does a lot of clinical research just to also research involving minority patients so that the data can be properly represented. We're so fortunate to have Dr. Poku with us here. And before we close, Dr. Poku, I just want to say if you were to talk to a pre-pregnant or pregnant woman out there from a Cardiology point of view, and you were to give advice or pearls of wisdom to help ensure that as they're going into their pregnancy, they have a good outcome, or when they're already in their pregnancy, what they can do to mitigate risks. And you are talking to this woman in any rural part of America, or basically any woman at all, what would you tell them?
1: I think you you want to go being your best self you want to put your best foot forward. You want to be as healthy as you want to be. So if you're smoking, you really want to think about quitting smoking. If you haven't been to a doctor in years, make sure you see a primary care physician or a family physician and get your first physical done. If you haven't been going regularly to any, you know, find a doctor, uh, That that'd be a, a good step. Well, some of the risk factors for heart disease, as we mentioned, are high blood pressure, diabetes, and really even pre-diabetes is something that we actually have to talk about. And uh, the other thing is something we call the metabolic syndrome, which really is just a combination of really diabetes, obesity, and in fact, even in in OBGYN, you also have a metabolic component with patients that have things such as PCOS and, and things of that nature. But be your best self is really find a doctor and get some care before you get pregnant. I think that that's the start. And if you're smoking, quit smoking. If you're drinking, cut back or Oh, uh, don't, uh, oh, don't uh, drink in pregnancy. Don't okay. uh, don't drink. <laughs> I mean, be, no, not one. You are asking me the question before, before pregnancy, right? 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 Probably right not. I'm glad for that correction. Oh God! You're <laughs> <too> funny. <laughs> <laughs> if you're drinking, it's time to change. Your liquor,
0: no. If you're, <laughs> not... <laughs> <laughs> that is good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, but 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 try to be your best self before before you get pregnant.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Well, I have a final surprise question for you, Doctor Poku. Oh. I know of your culinary skills. I mean, you are this sub-specialized cardiologist that does all these complex procedures, saving lives (laughs) and everything, but you are an excellent cook. How did you learn this in your so many years of training?
1: I learned cooking as a survival. I I came to the States when I was 16, pretty much attended boarding school most of my life and so i've always been i said i was institutionalized i've always (laughs) gone from one institution to the next (laughs) since i was a teenager but while i was in college anytime that the international students didn't go home we all got together and someone had to do the cooking and unfortunately that task actually fell on me you know fortunately so that's how I started learning how to cook and then started trading recipes. I had an uncle who's actually passed now. He used to live in New Jersey who I actually used to visit every Sunday. He loved to cook. And so every time I got there, we, we cooked and cooking then just became a way of relaxation. So I love my own food and I'd rather eat my own food than go to a restaurant. So that's, so I figured, hey, let me just learn how to cook as, as the restaurant if I, if I just wanted to stay home. That I might as well make it as good as the restaurant, so that's really kind of been what's actually pushed me to work on recipes and 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 get better
0: wow, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Fuku, I, am, I I just want to thank you. The foundation thanks you. Women all over the world, thank you. We're just so grateful for for the time. I know you have several meetings, even right after this one. But you know, I'm just so grateful for your 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 candid statements, your factual statements, the way you've just shed light on a lot of the issues that we're kind of confusing to people and we definitely want to use this opportunity to tell you we're going to be having you back on the podcast but thank you so very much for your time today
1: sure thank you very much thank you i enjoyed it thank you